It's chaos. It's a different type of Sunday scary. It's your newest obsession. It's dirty driving. A Formula One podcast. We're the Hornsby sisters. I'm Katie. And I'm Megan. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. Welcome back to yet another episode of Dirty Driving. This weekend was yet again another bye weekend. So we're deep diving. And Megan, tell us tell us who we're deep diving about. We are deep diving on my least favorite energy drink, Red Bull. Just kidding. I drink a shit ton of Red Bull, even though I'm trying to quit. I was the queen of vodka Red Bulls. I think I might still be the queen of vodka Red Bulls, but today I'm drinking a Celsius. Celsius and vodka just doesn't really work. You may have passed the vodka Red Bull crown over to me. You like those horrible Vegas bombs. Yeah, I, oh, I just love... like a vodka Red Bull. Like a vodka Red Bull in the morning, a vodka Red Bull in the afternoon. I love a Vegas bomb, which if you don't know, the correct way to make a Vegas bomb is Crown Royal, peach schnapps in the shot glass together, drop it in half a Red Bull, shoot it. It's the best thing ever. Can't Welcome to it. Dirty Driving, Welcome. where we provide you cocktail drinks <laughs> instead of racecraft knowledge. We're your hosts. <laughs> I'll be honest. Look, I don't even care if people come for me. A vodka Red Bull cures all of your issues. You don't want to go out? Drink a vodka Red Bull. You want to go home? Drink a vodka Red Bull. You just made out with the wrong person at the bar? Drink a vodka Red Bull. It'll cause... <laughs> Katie's making such fun of me. Oh you my god, will I can't be believe you cured. That. You will be cured. Right? Oh no, like am I wrong? Hungover? Drink a vodka Red Bull. Not feeling you need well? to drink a vodka Red Bull. Like it's a cure. Okay, maybe the maybe the illness, don't drink a vodka Red okay, Bull, especially yeah. if you're dehydrated. But like if you just are like, hey, I have a slight cold, but I still want to go out to the bars, drink vodka a Red vodka Bull. Red Bull. Yeah. You have sinus issues? Take a Zyrtec, vodka Red Bull. Vodka Red Do Bull. not take any medical advice from either of us. These are horrible things to teach the youth. These are horrible suggestions. And but we've we done con- them all. We've done them all. And we will continue to drink vodka Red Bulls until I I mean I I love a vodka Red Bull. Love it. I don't I don't like vodka I mean, I don't like Red Bull plain, but I love a vodka Red Bull. Weird 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 that we've taken up this much time discussing our vodka red bull love um but nonetheless when red bull did the green red bulls i'm still searching to find one i haven't found one because i want to try that with vodka yeah i think it's like passion fruit i thought it was dragon fruit oh okay i mean like same thing you know which you know what red bull is the grossest though the blueberry Coconut's Someone, atrocious. I was at the okay. We're gonna talk about vodka Red Bulls for just thirty seconds more. I was at the bar the other day, and the man was like, "I'm gonna make you a special vodka Red Bull." And he got the blue vodka. He got the blue Red Bull out and poured it in there. And I was, I took one sip and I said, "This is disgusting." <laughs> I said, "Okay, it wasn't that harsh." I was like, "Do you have any regular Red Bull, um, like sugar-free, regular? I don't care." And he's like, "No, the blue is all we have." And I'm like. Well, don't tell me you were going to make me a special one. Just tell me that the only color you have is blue. I would have ordered something else. Katie, he was trying to get rid of the blue Red Bull because it's so bad. It's so bad. (laughs) Blueberry. It's super super frustrating that 
the color of Red Bull that most like mimics the cars these days is the grossest. Yeah. Also, I'm gonna bring I had I know I was gonna bring this up at some point in this episode and I'm just gonna get it out of the way now. No way. No way. Do they drink that much Red Bull? I'm convinced. I am okay. convinced that they can water in Red Bull cans because Sergio Perez always has a Red Bull in his hand. And I'm not talking about his Red Bull water bottle that like looks like a fake Red Bull can. I'm talking about he always has a can of Red Bull in his hands. No way can you drink that much Red Bull and be a top performing athlete. Here's my sub point B to this argument. So all of them are drinking it like on the pit wall. I'm sorry. I'm anxious after I have a Red Bull. How could I be on the pit wall, be like responsible for race decisions and be like, I'll be drinking three. Like they have to be drinking multiple. Like they're drink, like you, they're actively drinking them. They're there all day. So they've had to have multiple at that point. So if that was actually Red Bull, I'd be a ball of anxiety crying in the back of the garage. So yes, it has to be water. And I need to be someone water. for Red Bull to confirm this. I, we DM'd them. I have not gotten a response. I'm going to follow up. Red Bull, we're calling you out. Tell us I need if you're to literally know. canning water in there. They I have need to, to know. be. Or, or I have just a very low tolerance for – no, there's no way. I'm sorry. I'm not even no. going to go down the road No, there's no me. way. No. If Christian Horner is drinking four Red Bulls, they could have vodka in them. Christian, what you got in that Christian? can? Oh, also, great idea for Red Bull. Great idea for the brand. Why would they not just can vodka Red Bulls? They have to have a liquor license for that. They're like the number one energy drink in the world. They, you don't think they can get a liquor license? I don't actually think that they want to be known for vodka Red Bulls. All right. They would make <laughs> like what is, they would what make is the a gazillion for dollars vodka in. Red Bulls. Red Bull vodkas give you wings, but then you run into buildings because you're drunk. Like. Yeah, also, you know, you're not supposed to mix uppers and downers, so. Literally, I repeat again, no one take any medical. Yeah, no one take any advice from us. Drinking advice for us. Um, and more importantly, maybe, I love how we're spending all of this time discussing the drink. I think I'm doing this and perpetuating <laughs> it because I really don't want to talk about, like, one of my least favorite people on the grid, which, okay, look. When I say that, he's still one of my favorite 19 athletes in the world. I just, in my head, counted are you, with Nikita Mazza, but I was still about on to, the grid. Yeah, I was about to say, are you leaving out Nicholas Latifi, or are you not doing math correctly? Which, you know, we've Perfect. been known not to do math correctly. Covers my ass there again. I left out Nicholas Latifi. He's there you not go. in my top 19 favorite athletes. Max Verstappen is. But I, I'm yeah. stalling because I'm like about to hype the man up and I'm just like not used to hyping the man up. Yeah, she's used to like tearing him down. And I'm like, but like. Poor Maxie. But like Maxie. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, and I offered, Max. I offered to take Max, but Megan said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to do Max. I'm going to talk about him. So. I need to learn to like my enemies. Not yeah. that he's, that's really harsh. I just say he's my top 19 athletes, but then I'm like, he's my mortal enemy. He's, he's my enemy. He's some of my favorite drivers, least favorite driver. But he's also the best friend of some of my favorite drivers. Like Maxwell Forever. Maxwell Forever. 
All right. Well, I can I can talk about Sergio to kick us off. Yeah, and ease delay. the pain. Ease my pain. Delay, delay, right, delay, 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 delay. Okay, I'll jump right in. Because you know what? We're talking about Checo. We're talking about the Minister of Defense, the man with the widest elbows in F1. Keep him out. Elbows out. <laughs> elbows out. He's got some of the smoothest tire management and isn't afraid to add a little heat to his on-track encounters. So I was ultimately really excited to learn and talk about Checo because I feel like he's always been the second choice. He's been around for like 12 years, but like really only people started talking about him last year. Last year. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I'll take that back. 2020, he had a race win. They talked about Yeah, he had a race win. Yeah, yeah. So, but in general, I feel like Checo's been looked at as like a secondary driver. He's a pay driver. Doesn't necessarily um, carry the amount of respect I think he is owed. Uh, So, yeah, I I was excited to talk about him and learn more about him. Uh, And like Megan said, he has been in F1 a lot longer than one would probably guess. He's raced for five teams and has the most points and wins other than any other Mexican driver in the history of F1. So he's doing something for his country at the end of the he's day. He's so patriotic. His dad is so patriotic. I love it. I love the support. I love that at the Mexican Grand Prix, we might as well rename it the Sergio Perez Grand Prix. Grand Prix. Like, Hell, in Canada, Katie, so many people were chanting Checo. There was more people chanting Checo than, than first off, the Canadian drivers. Amen. Questionable there. And second off, I mean, more people were chanting for Checo than they were for Max. Yeah. No, the guy I ran into at the airport the other day was like, I had my Red Bull sweatshirt on, and he was like, Checo or Max? And I was like, oh, because, like, you know how I feel about Max. Like, I like Max. Whatever. Let's move past it. But I also really like Checo, and so I answered Max, and he was like, no, no, Checo, Checo. And I'm like, okay, listen, like, I still love Checo, but, like, in that moment, I chose Max. It goes back and forth for me, though. Like, some days it's a Checo day, some days it's a Max day. Really depends on who hasn't pissed me off. And Checo had pissed me off that day because he was out of the race. Anyway, I digress. (laughs) That was a lot. Okay. And moving on. And moving on. We're going to be a lot of and moving on today. So in 1996, Checo got his driving start. He started karting at the age of six and actually began a very accomplished karting segment of his career. Uh, He participated in the youth karting class in 1997. He was the youngest driver in that category. He took one win, five podiums, and finished fourth in the championship. In 1999, he raced in the 80 Constructors Championship shifter category, where he took third in the championship and, again, was the youngest driver to win a competition in that category. So he actually had to get special permission from the Federation to participate. Um, And I think that's, like, something about Checo's story that – we don't necessarily always talk about, but he later, I'm going to get to it, but I'm going to mention it now. Like he moved over to Europe by himself. He lived in a restaurant above a restaurant. I think unlike a lot of drivers that had family support growing up in karting and um, maybe an easier ticket into karting and his career, 
um, Checo had to work hard for it. And I was really impressed reading about how he's been the youngest driver in a lot of these competition categories. So good on him. I mean, it's phenomenal. In 2003, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. So successful in karting, did really well. Again, a lot of youngest to compete. But in 2003, he was leading both championships of the Telmex Challenge um, in the 125 Constructors Championship category. He ended up finishing third. And then he actually competed in the U.S.-based Skip Barber National Championship in 2004, which is, I'm not wrong when I say that that's what, um, I'm wrong, aren't I? I'm wrong. Okay, never mind. Sorry. I got excited. I thought that was the same as what our friend Derek Ware had competed in, but it's different. I apologize. Um, but he, she was again, so hyped for it for I was second. so excited for a second. I was like, ah, but no, it's not. Um, and he was a driver for the, a team sponsored by Telmex. Then in his path to F1, that's when Perez moved to Europe. It was in 2005 to compete in the German Formula BMW ADAC series. And he, like I said, was allowed to live in, above the restaurant that was owned by the team manager for four months. He ended up finishing 14th in the championship, driving for four-speed media, and actually improved to um, sixth the next, the next year. So I think that's something that when we do our deep dive into karting, Megan, that we should take a look at is like um, – Maybe, you know, they're the drivers that didn't have the strongest first year in their path to Formula One, but then came back and, like, got situated and got comfortable and did and improved the following year. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. Yeah. I was kind of thinking about that because I feel like that's – as we've done these, I've seen that pattern of, like, their first year in the, like, next stage of karting or single-seat um, vehicles – they don't necessarily have like the best season, but then they come back the following season and it's like, it's almost like they've gotten, you know, more comfortable to it. Um, so yeah, in 2006, 2007, he competed in the A1 Grand Prix season and he took part in um, a single round of the A1 Team Mexico, which again, he was the third youngest driver to take part in the series. So like miles before his age, I guess, for like, I don't know if that makes sense, but it just seems like he was ahead of the curve always. Um, and I think that is something that I've seen, like, even today. Like, we've seen it in the second seat as a Red Bull driver that he was, like, ahead of the curve of, um, like, the struggles of being the second seat Red Bull driver. I feel like he came in and got comfortable and, you know, has done a really decent job, which we'll talk a little bit more about. In 2007, he switched to British F3 Championship and competed in the national class with the T-Sport team, winning the championship. Uh, he won all of the – winning two of the three races, um, but then took podium for two of the races as well. In 2008, he graduated to the premier international class of the championship, finishing fourth in the driver's standings, and then drove for Campos Grand Prix team – the first Mexican driver and was the first Mexican driver to compete at this level of motorsport since Giovanni Allo took part in International Formula 3000 in 1990. So um, not a lot of drivers out of Mexico. I That's something I should have looked up. I apologize. I'm not prepared for it. But um, I don't know how many total Mexican drivers have been in Formula 1. I would 
definitely say less than four. Um, so it's it's cool to see um, not only someone from North America, uh, but like I throw my weight behind Checo because he's you know North American and that's the continent we live on. <laughs> Finally, he moved to Arden International for the main 2009 GP2 series. He finished 12th, and in 2010, he raced for Barwa Adax and took second. So then we get to the Formula One piece. Because in October of 2010, he became a member of the Ferrari Driver Academy, which kind of, I don't know, but that was shocking to me. I, I was like, I didn't see that, but that's, that's the story. Ferrari Driver Academy and debuted with Sauber during the 2011 season. He raced for McLaren in 2013, and the team did not score a single podium that year. So um, those are like the sad years of McLaren. Force India came in 2014. Then obviously they switched over to Racing Point, and then he became the Red Bull driver in 2021. His time at Racing Point slash Force India was very interesting. He was partnered with Esteban Ocon. And I know Megan remembers this, but I'm not sure if whoever's listening remembers this, but they had some beef. They were in a lot of teammate accidents, a lot of run-ins. And then there was the big beef of when Lawrence Stroll bought the team, who was going to be replaced by Lance Stroll. And it ended up being Esteban Ocon, and they kept Sergio Perez, which – I think speaks to how well-rounded of a driver that Checo has always been and, again, has not necessarily received the praise and the recognition of his talents. So in 2021, last year, Red Bull, they ended, he ended P4. or No, excuse me, he ended P2, right, Megan? Last year? Last year? No. P2. No. Red Bull was P2 in the constructors, but Checo was P4 in the drivers. P4. Okay, sorry. Thank you for clarifying that. I, you know what he was two in? He was two in my, um, in my ra- ranking of the drivers. So that's why I had that little brain bleed for a no, moment. No, it was I, Lewis that was in second place. <laughs> no, Lewis was my first place in my rankings. No, I'm saying P2 in the constructors was, was Lewis. Was Lewis, Because in yes. the Max and Lewis battle, they were... Yeah. Durr. Sorry. You could only P1 and P2 had to be Verstappen or <laughs> Hamilton. There was no other option. There was no other They were battling options. for the title. There's no other options. Yeah, Sergio Perez came and took it from Lewis Hamilton in the last race if you missed it. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay, so, excuse me. So, Red Bull, P4 in the championship. He took one win at the Azerbaijan GP, and that was that restart where Hamilton went off. So, Played to his favor. He took a total of five podiums. And again, he played this key role in the fight between Red Bull and Mercedes last year. He was consistent. He stepped into that seat with, I think, grace and did a really good job compared to the two drivers that we had seen not do a good job before him as that pressured second seat, uh, which I think we'll get a little bit more into later when we talk about uh, Helmet Marco, Um, which is, yeah, that's coming. Don't worry. (laughs) I'm going to keep my mouth shut and hold my commentary about. Yeah. I know who you're referencing, Gasly and Albon. I'm going to keep my commentary on why I think Red Bull fucked them till later. (laughs) Totally. Totally. 
And then so far in 2022, pre-France again, he has been consistently the wingman that Christian has been looking for. Other than his three DNFs, which last weekend was super disappointing for him uh, because he did such a good job in the sprint, um, he's taken six podiums. So five second places this year, took the win in Monaco. And again, like, I feel bad for the guy because he is that it's clear that he's the second seat, but also like he's driving for Red Bull. He's got a killer car. He's got a killer team, I guess you could say. Uh, He's in the title fight. He's in the title fight. I'm sorry. He knew what he was getting into when he signed on that contract. When he signed a a deal with Senator Palpatine, like he knew what he was getting into. I feel no remorse for him. Yeah. I, I know. I just, I don't know, like... I just want to give him a hug sometimes. He's 40, he's 57 points behind Max. So he's like not in in it, but he's not out out of it. He's not, right? he is not out of it. I mean, I would say that like it's going to be a slim chance, but hell, Max has two DNFs. Four, 57 points is two DNF range. Well, you know I have money on it, so. We're hoping. We're hoping. We're hoping. Everybody, fingers crossed, that Sergio Perez pulls up out of nowhere and steals the championship so Katie and Megan can go to Brazil. Dinner. Oh. <laughs> I just, like. Look, here's my thing. Here's my thing, and this is a perfect segue into Max. Like, I have no issue if Max wins this year. I had an issue with how Max won last year. I have no problem if Max wins this year. What I do have a problem with is it being decided too quickly. Like, I would like this to come down to the last third or second, or, like, the third to last race or the penultimate race. I'm even okay if it goes to the final. That's open for a lot. But I just want there to be a... And for a second this year, I didn't think that was going to be happening, considering what was happening with Max and how many wins that he was getting in a row. So, like, am I rooting against Max? Not necessarily. I'm not even rooting against Red Bull. I think my bigger thing is I'm rooting for there to be that tight competition, which we're seeing. So, you know, we're heading into France. We are we first off, let's let's back it up here. We just left Austria where Max Verstappen didn't win at his home race. After Max didn't win at Silverstone for the second year in a row. So we've had two races where Max hasn't won and Ferrari has. So like to me, Max is not in the fight at Silverstone. He had the issue with his car, the giant chunk of the AlphaTauri. Which he like surprisingly looked way too happy holding way, up. I way still too think that was weird that he was like, look, he, I thought it was really weird. But um, he was in the fight in Austria. He solidified a P2 instead of a P3 because if Carlos Sainz he hadn't DNF'd, he totally would have been in third. He just didn't have the pace. So like, but we're going into France where Max won last year. So it's like, okay, we've had two Ferrari wins. I wouldn't be against a Max Verstappen win in France, but. I would prefer to see more like maybe a Max Verstappen third or fourth just so that we have like other teams getting points and the fight continues. I don't want him to run away with it. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. I also feel like it may be time for a weird one-off win. 
Oh, I'm hoping for Hungry. Haas is bringing upgrades. I want to see a Haas on the podium in Hungry. The day it's I see a Haas on the podium is... I don't I even know what I want to say around to that. The streets. I will do, I will do that. something so ridiculous. I can't even tell you what it's going to be. I will buy the Ikea boat. I'll go have these on it with you. And then we'll put our race setup in it, and me and you can sit in the Ikea boat and race. <laughs> I love that. We'll get two of them. Yeah, we can each have a boat. Okay, if Haas goes boat. on the podium, we will order the Ikea boat. Done. I will even paint it Haas colors. And if we put Gunther custom- Steiner's picture in it. Okay, if we could- Let- okay yeah. Start, I, I'm start talking for myself. Max. I know. I'm start de- talking about I'm Max. S- I'm literally delaying again. I'm delaying. I am. I am. I'm perfectly ready to cut you off and sing his praises whenever you need me to. Okay. Thanks for letting me know. <laughs> Let's talk about Max. Super Max. Mad Max. He's had a couple. Of, he's had a couple of nicknames. Super Max is definitely better than Mad Max, and the man has a national anthem for himself. The he literally has an anthem for his. Max Verstappen Orange Army. It's called Super Max. Not my favorite song, but to each their own. He is the current reigning World Drivers Champion, and he's the leader, like I said, of the Orange Army, which constantly sets off those orange dust bombs into the... And I was proven right. I would have been pissed if I was in those grandstands. I saw the videos. You could see nothing. And I would have been like, no. (laughs) But nonetheless... The most important role that Max Verstappen plays is not as the reigning world driver champion, not as the stepfather to Daniel Kvyat's child, but as Christian Horner's golden boy. Literally, Max Verstappen is the golden ticket that that kid in Willy Wonka was looking for, that Red Bull was searching for. He was the the nugget of greatness that Helmut Marco and Christian Horner were like, we will make you a star. And more importantly, you will make Red Bull a champion. That's all I got to say about him. I, he literally is the, the golden nugget that they've been searching for. He's the, he's the, what's that thing in... Marvel that they're all looking for. <laughs> I've lost the joke here. I've lost the it. Infinity Stones. Like yes, he is the prized <laughs> F1 Infinity Stone. Like he is the very <laughs> thing that Red Bull has been searching for, and Christian Horner has been probably like praying for for years, and you he know- got it. And look, they finally took a World Driver Champion, and I think that was like the sign sealed and delivered. Like Christian's, like look, I've done greatness. You know in, um, like, religious paintings or, like, paintings of Mary and it's got, like, that golden aura around? Yes, Max Verstappen has has a, a, we're going to say an orange glow. An orange glow. When Christian Horner looks at Max, he sees this orange aura of hallelujah. hallelujah." And then Max's face morphs into a lion. Ah, yeah, that's good. Like the, I love that. Okay. And okay. we're getting back. Sorry. We, yes, focusing. We've lost it again. So Max Verstappen started his Formula One career back in 2015, which blows my mind when I think about that. He was with Toro Rosso, and he was the youngest F1 competitor at 17 years old. He actually had to get, like, his super license early because he couldn't legally drive in his home country when he could drive F1 cars. I also find it amazing that 
he has been an F1 since 2015. That blows my mind when I think about that. But I mean, he it's a fact. It just kind of doesn't click. He feels younger than that for some reason. Um, but really, I think it has to do with the fact that he started so young. Yeah, obviously. Simple maths. Currently, he sits with 26 Grand Prix wins, 15 pole positions, 90 or wow, 68 podiums, 19 fastest laps. And like I said, one World Drivers Championship. I will admit that that World Drivers Championship may have gone to his head a little bit because he changed his number from 33 to one, which hadn't been done since Sebastian Vettel had won. Maybe it's Red Bull thing. Oh, my God. Maybe it's a Red Bull thing. It's kind of like, maybe it's Maybelline. Maybe it's Maybelline. Maybe it's a Red Bull thing. Oh, I like it. Red Bull, come at us. We'll be our new marketing team. So Max Verstappen, what, let's take it back to his youth, because I think that's where a lot of like this all kind of persona began, which is weird to say like he gained a persona when he was young, but I think it truthfully did begin there. So he was born in Belgium and he lived there, but he was raised Dutch with, primarily Dutch friends. So that's really what he feels more connected to is those Dutch roots and not his like true, like actual birth country of Belgium. Um, he even said like, I've lived in Belgium all my life, but I feel more Dutch because of all the carding time I, or the carding, I spent more time with my father than with my mother, which is true. He has a dual nationality. His father is Joss Verstappen, who is a former F1 driver. And his mom is a former carter. Her name is Sophie Crumpton. Kumpen, Kumpen, I Kumpen, probably be yeah. Kumpen, I probably said that incorrectly. I'm sorry, um, but the parent, his parents split when he was younger, so his sister lived with his mom and he lived with his dad, and that was primarily because of his racing intentions. Like he wanted to be in karting, which he started doing at the age of four. He started very, very young, very young. Um, before we get too far into like his karting career, I want to talk a little bit about his like relationship with his dad. Yeah. Cause, um, so Joss obviously was an F1 driver and that's what inspired his like love of driving. I do think that Max was probably born liking speed. He even said that on the part of my take episode that he just did where he, our interview where he was like, yeah, I think I liked going fast when I was in my mom's womb. It's in his genes. It makes a lot of sense. His dad, Joss, was like literally his coach, his, I wouldn't say like inspiration, but kind of like his like challenger in the, you know, in trying to push himself further. Um, in a couple of articles I've read is kind of like a summary where I've taken this all from. Like Joss, a couple of things that happened that I think defined him as a driver was that his dad would intentionally make changes without telling Max so Max would have to then use his, like, understanding of the car, his feel of the car, I guess the cart at that time, to then relay that feedback back to his dad. So I think that's kind of, like, the first place it began is, like, making changes, not telling him, and then forcing Max to actually be able to articulate how it felt differently. Another interesting thing is that he would challenge Max to overtake people in karting in different spots. So he'd be like, don't overtake on two, four, and six, overtake on three, seven, nine, which would force him to learn skills that, you know, wouldn't come if he had just been allowed to overtake in the normal spots he always did. It pushed him to become a better driver, but I think it just overall pushed his like racecraft ability and that started as a young age so if you 
gain those skills before the age of like 12, that's going to continuously like multiply and build as you move up the series. Um, another big thing that was stressed, which probably makes a lot of sense, was like the concept of feeling the car and knowing and seeing and being able to differentiate where to like look at data, but also where to just like know in your gut instinct and the feel of the car. That's something that I think all great racers have. It's just that natural instinct of like, this is what feel like, this is where I feel like the car doesn't have speed here. I feel like the car does have spirit feel. I feel like the car does have pace here. Wow. That was hard to say. Ultimately, their relationship was a lot of tough love. And that's something that I took straight out of David Couthard's mouth. But there's many times that Max has talked about his like upbringing and how tough his dad was on him. Now, Max claims with a smile on his face that all of that tough love, all of that, you know, roughness, maybe gruff personality that we see out of Joss was all to make him a better driver. Take that for what you will. I'm not going to analyze their relationship beyond that. Yeah. I'll let let anyone else kind of decide what they think. Joss describes Max as like a good and gentle person, but he's much different with his helmet on. I think that's probably true. I think that's probably true of all F1 drivers is that their personality outside the car does not translate to their personality inside of the car. Um, But again, I think a lot of this like tough love, this like need for performance, this need for pace, this need to succeed ended up giving Max like a bit of a complex, I will say, that has left him hot-headed at times. We've seen it where he's done controversial things, made controversial statements. We all know what happened between him and Esteban Ocon. Ultimately, I think, you you know, you take the hot-headedness at, at the same time that you take that, like, a lot of that probably contributed to his desire to perform and his unbeatable speed or unbelievable. He is beatable at times. And the fact that he's a really hard worker. And all, at the end of the day, he wants this. And I'd love to add one thing here. I feel as though since he was the youngest driver, he had to mature a lot quicker than one anyone else had to in Formula One, maybe. I don't know. That might be a bold statement. And just the growth in what I've seen in him since I first started watching Formula One to now is completely different. And... I think for the people who don't like Max, for the people who do do like Max, like the one thing that I want to see from all of the drivers is that they're like constantly improving and showing us what they can do. And I, and that's why I like Max because at the end of the day, like he can show us what he can do. And the fact that he listened to his dad say for all those years that he wasn't going to be the best and that he wasn't going to, he was just going to be a, trash truck driver and all of that and he overcame all of that and got to the sport and is where he is now like it's impressive it's impressive I would that my only counterpoint to that would be like I would say that Sergio Perez had to mature quickly as well but Max maybe was forced to mature when he wasn't actually maturing like he was forced because I think a lot of the things that Max did when he was in the Mad Max era were just immature. Like, hi, I'm mature in the fact that I can handle myself on track in times, but I'm also immature that I let myself get oh, get 
angry. I get aggressive. I get heated. I, I make, you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. there was a different level of maturity. Like he was forced to mature when he actually wasn't like maturing. Whereas like, I don't know, maybe I, I, I do, would, I would make an argument that all of the F1 drivers had to mature young, quicker than all of us. I mean, none of us had to leave our home at like a young age. Like hell, Max moved to Monaco at 18 by himself. Even that, like thinking about that, impressive yes he had money yes he could quickly go visit his family yes his family could visit him but still like that's a bold move to make like okay i'm 18 i'm out of the house i've i've got to go do this i'm gonna fly around the world it's a lot it's a lot when you're young and i would say that some mature differently than others and i think max is showing us his maturity now i will admit that okay Let's take it back to a little bit of the beginning with Max. Um, he started karting, like I said, at four and a half years old. Um, it's impressive. That's a pretty young age to be put into a, a cart, but I mean, they all start young for the most part. Ultimately, his move after karting was like, I'm going to skip a lot of the karting years. He was a great carter, blah, 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 blah. Moving on, his move to F1 was quick and it was much quicker than most people. So in 2014, which is weird to say at 2014 he was doing this because I was like, I was in college and I had no idea what F1 was. But in 2014, he was in F3. He was racing um, at the age of tw- at, at the age of 16, um, which is the legal age that you can drive in America. So it's also crazy to think that he was in F3 racing. Like a lot of these years sometimes click and with Max, it really clicks how like recent this was. Um, but that year he had 10 wins, six of which were consecutive wins. And he ended P3 for the season. Interesting also to note, in 2014 was when he joined the Red Bull Junior Driver Team, which was in August of 2014. August. Think about that. He had an offer from Mercedes, but he actually turned it down. At 2015, like, so August of 2014, he signs with the Red Bull Junior Program. In 2015, he's racing for Scuderia Toro also. August 2014 to then... March of 2015, he's racing with Scuderia Toro Rosso. Quick. He went from F3 to F1 at the age of 17. So I understand why he was, like, pushed into a situation that he might not have been mature enough, and that led to some some moments on track. Um, But even in 2015, at age 17, he was, like, tagged as being, like, a very instinctive driver. He had a very, a very much that never-back-down racing style that has not gone away. But he made his debut at the 2015 Austrian Grand Prix at the at the age of 17 years and 166 days, which made him the youngest F1 driver in history. Like I said before, he was granted that super license before he was even allowed to legally drive at home. So I, I'm just highlighting here how important it is to note that like he was so young. And I think a lot of that pushing into F1 so quickly kind of maybe did not have give him the time to mature and led to some of these tendencies that have gotten him tagged as Mad Max. In 2016, he raced four races with Scuderia Toro Rosso before he was moved, promoted to Red Bull, their mother team, their father team, their A team. I don't know what word we're using here. They call it a sister team, but, like, I'm sorry, Toro Rosso was the, like, child to the machine. So, yeah, it was the child mother. He moved to the mother team, the mothership. The darks, the Death Star, whatever that's called. He actually replaced Daniel Kvyat, um, and he would partner up with 
Katie's laughing. Sorry, I'm not going I'm into sorry. it. We've already talked about it before. He yeah, was partnered with Danny Rick and the beginning of the Maxel days. I was trying to do it the reverse and I couldn't do it. Dax. The Manol days? The the Manol days? The Dax days? I don't know. Where'd you get Manol? Um, oh, Max and Daniel. Got it. Max sorry. and Daniel. Manol, Maxel, whatever. I'm trying here. Okay. Um, like I said, he replaced Daniel Kvyat in his first. The reason he replaced Daniel Kvyat is because um, of the tangle that Daniel Kvyat had with Sebastian Vettel at Kvyat's home race in Russia. He would premiere at Red Bull for the Spanish Grand Prix, and he would actually go on to win that race. He became their youngest Grand Prix, Grand Prix race winner. He qualified P3 that weekend, um, and then he was under relentless pressure from Kimi Raikkonen, but he was able to pull out the win, um, even though after the race he flat out admitted that he wasn't sure what all the buttons did on the steering wheel. I don't know if that's true or that's facetious, but I still think it's funny. He would end up P5 in the drivers that year. It was seven podiums. So it was like a very solid debut with Red Bull, especially considering he didn't start the season with them. He didn't have the testing with them. I mean, granted, he was part of the Red Bull Junior Driver Program, so he was not like not around it. Then we would have years of the Daniel Ricciardo, Max Verstappen, bromance, even though on track they had some moments of tangling. 2018 Baku. Was it 18? I don't know. That might be the mm-hmm. wrong year. It was 2018 mm-hmm. Baku. Um, but they would, I mean, we all loved them off track. I, yeah. Had flat out, the videos of the two of them as teammates off track are hilarious and it's still my favorite bromance to this day. I love them. The the one of them doing Christmas gifts, hilarious. The one of them on the yacht, hilarious. Great, great times between the two of them. So we will then bounce back into kind of the timeline in 2019. This is where I feel like, you know, they, Red Bull was struggling with their consistency. Him and Daniel were battling it out. But 2019 is when, like, I really started to note that, like, Max, he's going he's gonna to win it. I, didn't, I couldn't tell you what year it was, but, like, if you look back at 2019, you're like, okay, he's going to win one for sure. That year, Red Bull had more consistency. He was given his contract extension. Um, he would take some massive wins. Um, but really, like, the big thing here is that he was P3 in the drivers this year. So he's climbing those ranks. Again, you have Red Bull searching for the magic beans, a.k.a. the magic second driver to the golden boy. And then next year, we would have 2020, which would be another flub for wingman for Max Verstappen. And he would again go P3 in the drivers. Then we get to 2021, which is easily hands down his most consistent year. The controversialness of last year, we've dissected. You can go back and listen to any of the like title fight, the season recap, any of our episodes or like the last four of last season. We'll talk about kind of the the controversy of last year, but I think outside of what was going on on track, the biggest controversy around Max was the fact that he decided not to participate in Drive to Survive because it was fake or the drama was fabricated. The only reason I'm mentioning this is because we are most likely going to see Max Verstappen in the next season of Drive to Survive. I didn't know that. Did you listen to the Pardon My Take episode? No, honestly, I have not yet. I'm sorry. So he I listened to... Well, you had you had it on FaceTime or something, and we were listening to it, but I don't think I ever finished it because I don't. Yeah, oh, he I hinted that. that he was like 
look, I've talked to them. I understand it. You're probably going to see a little bit more of me next year. So I think we're going to get a little bit more of Max next year, which would be great. Hell yeah. Um, to kind of see the inner workings of Red Bull. I do. That's one of the things I actually like from Drive to Survive. The first two seasons was that you learned a lot by learning about like Red Bull. I don't care if you don't like Drive to Survive. You learn a lot by watching it. Moving on. Um, last year, he took the most podiums in a season, the most wins, polls, and podiums. I said that twice. I don't know why. He ultimately wins the Drivers' Championship at Abu Dhabi, even though it's controversial. I'll leave my thoughts at the door. But most importantly, at the end of that season, he was crowned a champion, and he would sign a contract to extend his stay with Red Bull until 2028. Which recently, in an interview, Max was talking about how he'd stick around longer if he had a car that could fight for podiums. So I do think that there's a chance that after 2028, Max would be like, look, I got some wins. I got some championships. I'm out. I could also see if Red Bull's still competitive, he sticks around. This year, let's talk about 2022. His dominance has continued. He has won six races this year, two sprints this year. Unfortunately, He's also had two DNFs, and that's just really the unfortunate part of this year is that the reliability has hampered his ability to win additional races. His average qualifying this position this year has been 2.3 for the first 11 races of the year. He is the best qualifying average of any of the drivers on the grid. It makes a lot of sense. The car has the pace, he has the skill, and he has been able to find to find pace when pace didn't exist. I mean, literally, let's look at Austria last weekend. His qualifying like lap that got him into pole position for going into the sprint, he had the first two sectors were yellow, and then he went purple in the third. He pulled it out. He pulled pole position out of his butthole. And that's that's that is a talent of Max. I will say it. He can pull pace even when there is no pace i mean he literally finished p7 in silverstone with a giant chunk of an alphatari in the bottom of his car so he has the ability to manage and to fight even when the car doesn't necessarily have the drive that he wants it to have in it so i gotta give max some props ultimately he's not my favorite but i do think that he is a great driver and i will say that he's grown up a lot in the last couple of years and I do appreciate that his ability to race the Ferraris this year has not been as aggressive as his racing with Lewis Hamilton last year. And that's yeah. a wrap on Max. Cheers to my Celsius and not Red Bull. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Racing Thread, Formula One clothing for any occasion. Their clothing features subtle, evocative, embroidered designs for your favorite F1 moments. From Ricardo's Monza Shoei to Sebastian's Australian scooter ride. From Lewis's Brazilian comeback to Carlando's round of golf. Whether you're out to dinner with friends, watching the race at home, or cheering in the grandstands. Gone are the embarrassing sponsor logos. Instead, Racing Thread is F1 clothing you are comfortable wearing anywhere. Right now, Dirty Driving listeners can get 15% off Racing Thread's entire range of t-shirts, sweatshirts, and polos using the code DIRTYDRIVING. That's Dirty Driving, all capitals, no spaces, for 15% off their entire clothing range.
Head over to RacingThread.com to shop F1 Racewear for anywhere. All right, let's dive into some of the team history. And I don't know, you might be wondering, or maybe you've always wondered what an energy drink company is doing running a Formula One team. But I feel like most people have an understanding that Red Bull isn't just an energy drink company, but they're actually a marketing company. And they're in a, they're basically like an events business because all they do is sponsor extreme sport athletes and throw parties and purchase f1 tracks now so you might be a little confused maybe you're like what is she talking about but red bull again does an excellent job of choosing to use extreme sports and event promotion as the key to their marketing behind their energy drink itself and that's why they've got the tagline it gives you wings you know like you see all these athletes chucko drinking cans and cans of Red Bull that must be filled with water I'm gonna bring it up one last time and they're performing so that's the premise that founder and forgive me for this last name pronunciation Dietrich Mateschitz I think so that's how I would have pronounced it yeah founded Red Bull on so years after using this like a marketing hack of this extreme sports they knew they had to enter F1 they did so as a title sponsor back in 1995, and then in 2004, they actually purchased the Ford rebranded Jaguar team for the 2005 season. The team initially started as a Sauber-sponsored team and began the 1995 season with the title sponsorship of Red Bull. They had the a very similar logo to what we see on the cars now on the Sauber cars, and it started to become a lot more popular with Kimi Raikkonen taking fourth in the Constructors' Cup that year, or within those first three years of their title sponsorship. The team was also, a little later on, the team was known as Stuart Grand Prix from 1997 to 1999 and then became Jaguar from 2000 to 2004, and this whole time they were sponsored as a title sponsor by Red Bull because Dietrich had purchased a large share of uh, of Sauber and so they signed until 2004 and then they purchased the team in 2005 officially. So between 2005 and 2009 the team had a lot of ups and downs and often found itself or most often found itself in seventh place of the Constructors Championship but popped up to P2 in 2009. And this was the first glimmer of what became this Red Bull dominating Formula One era. We had Sebastian Vettel, the great Sebastian Vettel, win four driver's championships in a row for Red Bull. It started in 2010, and the RB6, which was the car that year, had an obvious advantage over the teams that they were competing with, McLaren and Ferrari. They won the Constructors' Championship in Brazil with a 1-2 win, and together they scored nine wins, 15 poles, and six fastest laps, and there were no team orders. So I feel like that's something to mention about Red Bull. Back in the day, Sebastian Vettel and Mark Webber had an interesting relationship, I would frame it as, uh, because 
team orders weren't often portrayed and then when they were um they weren't followed always and so uh it, it's an interesting relationship and I wish there was a book about it I wish one of them maybe one day Sebastian Vettel will write a book um so we can learn more about the inner workings of that relationship then the next year, Sebastian Vettel defended his title, becoming the ninth driver to do so. He won with four races left to go in the season. He had 11 wins and 15 poles, breaking Mansell's 92 record. And something that I forgot to mention is that in 2010, Vettel won to become the sport's youngest ever world championship, and that record still stands. Vettel actually has a lot of the youngest records um, Max has broken a few of them, but uh, it goes to show I feel like the pairing between Sebastian Vettel and Red Bull in these years and in this era of Red Bull dominance was was so great. He always praised the car. He, he bowed to the car. It's on my list of things to do, but to watch more of the races from these four years uh, when Sebastian was in his prime. They finished in 2011. They took the Constructors' Championships 153 points ahead of McLaren with three races to go, and Mark Webber, Sebastian's teammate, ended in P3 in the Drivers' Championship. In 2012, we had another Vettel win, as I mentioned, and there was a ban on exhaust-blown diffusers that robbed the RB8 of dominance, and we started to see some reliability issues and just not as strong as they were in the two years previous. But they continued to push technical boundaries with floor holes and their engine map, which was controversial. But they succeeded. And Vettel took yet again another world championship. They didn't think so at the beginning of the season because the first seven races went to seven different winners. Um, but Red Bull came out and really showed in the second half of the season and won this development battle that I'll be interested to see if they are able to win this year now that we're in another development race and battle. And then finally, in 2013, Vettel again took another world championship. They renamed the team to Infinity Red Bull. They were both the title and vehicle performance partner, and it was the fifth season for this driver pairing of Sebastian Vettel and Mark Webber. The RB9 struggled in the beginning, but again, after the mid-season break, Vettel went on a rampage of winning. I think he took, was it, I don't know, Megan, do you know off the top of your head? I think it was nine wins in a row. Um, don't quote me on that. I did a bunch of research on this error before the season started, and so the knowledge isn't fresh in my brain. And then after the season, Weber announced a retirement, and he was replaced by Daniel Ricciardo, uh, who was a Red Bull junior driver member. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later in the episode. But they came out and dominated in the four years. And then they didn't dominate and because Mercedes came in. And I think that, you know, Christian as the sport's youngest F1 principal to be put in that position, it's so mind-blowing to me that he's still in that position. And that through the drought of all the Mercedes wins that 
Red Bull kept their faith in Christian. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, Megan, or have any thoughts to add on that. I mean, I don't think he's. it's ever been in question whether or not Christian was going to be in charge. I think it's always just been Christian. They brought him in with very little experience. He was in Formula 300. He was a team owner. Yeah, he was a team principal. Yes, they had a lot of wins, but he had no experience leading like a, an F1 team. I, it's always been Christian. And I don't know if that's because of his relationship with Helmut Marco. I don't know if he was saved in the middle of the 2010s because they knew that they had a golden boy that they were cultivating. They had the junior drivers program. I don't know if at the end of the day they're like, look, we had four years with Sebastian Vettel being successful and winning titles that, you know, we're in a slump. And that's not really a slump because of what we're doing. It's more a slump of because of what Mercedes is doing. I think there's a lot of factors, but I don't actually ever think that, like, Christian's position was in doubt. Which, I mean, job security. <laughs> Phenomenal for him. <laughs> okay, and then I just wanted to touch on recent years, and then I do have a couple notes about their engine, because I think that there's a decent story there that Drive to Survive told that I want to mention. Megan touched on this a little when she was talking about Max. In 2019, we had the pairing of Max Verstappen and Pierre Gasly to start the season, and then we had the, I'm going to go with horrendous choice to remove Pierre Gasly from his seat midseason and replace him with Alex Albon. To this day, I'm still pissed at Christian for doing that. I, I'm pissed about it. Max had four wins, so it was a decent showing for him that year considering teammate changes and Alex Albon actually went on to win Rookie of the Year. But the whole year I was disappointed, to be completely honest. In 2020, we had the pairing of Max Verstappen and Alex Albon again. Max, I'm not going to say this. You already said this, but Max took two wins. Um, Alex dropped back to test and reserve driver, and then Sergio Perez would make the move to Red Bull. And then in 2021, they were P2 in the Constructors' Championship. Obviously, behind Mercedes, Max took his first win, and it was the first team win since Sebastian Vettel in 2013. Max was dominant, took 10 of the 22 races, and um, Checo won his first race and gained the title of Minister of Defense. So I feel like 2021 was a change in Red Bull with finding a second driver that could stand up to Max and hold against the pressure. And also, I feel like things just zhuzhed a lot. I, f I truly think that that dropping of Pierre Gasly was a really, really, really poor decision that caused issues within the team. And then finally, I just wanted to touch on the engines. Back in the day, they had Ferrari, and then they passed that contract over to their sister team, Toro Rosso, in 2007, so Red Bull could make the switch to Renault. And if you've seen Drive to Survive, you know the relationship between Renault, who was their new engine supplier, and Red Bull was not the prettiest, especially with the Daniel leaving the team and the drama. So um, Red Bull switched to Honda engines in 2019, and it took them um, to the place of competi competitiveness in 2021. So they decided to stick with stick with Honda. However, it's a little it's a little bit different in their relationship. So the original plan was for Red Bull to set up the Red Bull powertrains to take over. 
Honda's intellectual property about the engine. And it would still come from Honda's base from Japan and for this year, 2022. And it would be a working end to the end of this partnership. Now the Honda engine is created that took place. And so their partnership with Honda not only took them to a place of competitiveness, but leaving Renault as an engine supplier that was underperforming, I think they made the right moves at the right time. And their success in in last year and their competitiveness shows that. So I just wanted to throw that in there. I know it's kind of a repeat of what most of you have seen on Drive to Survive, but they've taken an interesting journey with their engine. All right, so for our focused question of Red Bull, we wanted to talk a little bit about the junior driver program. We've hinted at it. We think this was um, something important with the news of Jury, Yuri leaving. We think that we want to take a look at, you know, whether or not their junior program has maybe been a success. So in 2001, Red Bull founded this junior team with a very clear objective of finding a future F1 champion. They wanted to be able to scout and acquire international talent to have professional and continuous training and implement a competition from the beginning mindset paired with the idea of always being under pressure to perform. And I think that's something that we've seen from Red Bull always. They're always putting their drivers under an immense amount of pressure to show results, more so than I feel like we see from other teams. Obviously, all teams put their drivers under pressure and the drivers themselves put themselves under pressure. I might have said themselves an extra time there. We really see that from Red Bull, and it's done maybe some harm for them with putting so much pressure on their drivers. This is something I didn't know to learn this, but I was intrigued to learn this. But the program was created and developed by, I call him Satan himself, Dr. Helmut Marco, who we all know is now a current advisor. He was a formula, former F1 driver, and he won a Le Mans tournament or competition. But all in all, they look for highly talented young drivers to sponsor and pay for them and train them in the lower formulas to train, you know, these ultimate championship winning drivers. And then I figured we could just talk a little bit about each one of the drivers, their successes, and whether or not we feel like they benefited from the Red Bull, Red Bull Junior Drivers Program. I think, like, ultimately, the issue with the Red Bull Junior Drivers Program is that it, like, has pushed performance over actually becoming, like, an a well-rounded athlete the only people to get out of it being like a well-rounded athlete are Sebastian Vettel and Daniel Ricciardo and Carlos Sainz and really Carlos Sainz was like the one that got away from Red Bull they should have never ever ever put him in a position where like he didn't have a spot they just didn't have a spot for him so with that being said I think we start with Sebastian Vettel so Sebastian Vettel I would like to claim is like the beginning of Red Bull driver program success. He wasn't the first one to graduate from the program by any stretch of the imagination, but I think he was really the first one to make the wheels click that the program could actually produce success. Sebastian Vettel would take his first Red Bull junior alumni alumni win. Let's go with that. Let's call him alumni win in Monza of 2008 then he would go on, like Katie said, to be a four-time world champion. 
So clearly the program does produce success, which we've seen replicated now with Max Verstappen, who joined in 2014, was promoted to F1 just months later, which blows my mind that it was that quick. But again, they clearly can produce champions from this program. What's interesting, I think, about all of this is that really they can't produce a good second driver out of this program, which probably has to come from the fact that they prefer ingrain mm-hmm. and still yeah yeah you can go that wash could we go that far maybe to f- the concept of you must perform or you're out you must perform or there is a risk and if you aren't performing then you could just be dropped like a like the drop of a hat which is kind of what they did to gasly and albon they didn't drop them off of the roster but i think they probably fucked up in not a giving them more time to develop not putting them at giving them the the extra years the extra years of practice of racecraft building before they shoved them into the second driver role and were like perform 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 but at the same time are like be a wingman be a wingman be a wingman it's this weird dynamic that suddenly shifts when you move into that second driver role which I think we see with Sergio Perez, him moving into that second driver role and it being successful, is that he didn't, A, come from the Red Bull Junior Drivers program, and B, he spent a lot of team at, time at other teams before filling that like teammate role to Max Verstappen, where that didn't happen for Pierre and Albon. Then if you look at their other alumni, we have Daniel Kvyat as well, who I think that they probably cut him a little short. Yeah. They burned him a little too quickly and then just sent him back to Toro Rosso. Additionally, on this list is really drivers that have done well beyond F1 or outside of F1. So the ones that come to mind off the top of my head, we have Brendan Hartley, who's a two-time WEC champion and a Le Mans winner. You also have Jev, who is a double Formula E champion. He was coming out of that program. You also have Sebastian I I always pronounce it incorrectly, but he was a Formula E champion as well. So there are drivers that have come out of the program that have found success elsewhere. I think the bottom line, the program does not produce second place drivers or, or second seat drivers. Like they don't produce that like teammate mentality. So thus they aren't going to be able to in house produce like someone like a Sergio Perez for Max to uses his wingman. We even kind of see that with Daniel Ricciardo and Max Verstappen. Both of them wanted to be like number one drivers. They wanted to be the leader of the team. And really like the big reason why Daniel left is that Red Bull threw all of its eggs into the Max Verstappen basket. And Daniel was like, it's very clear they want me to be a second driver. And that's not a position that I want to fill. I want to be a champion. Yeah. Megan, when we just rewatched Drive to Survive together last weekend and we saw the clip of Christian telling Daniel's dad there are no second drivers when they're literally treating him as a second driver. And I think between losing Daniel and losing Pierre – Those were some of Red Bull's biggest mistakes. I think their biggest mistake was, A, losing Daniel. They should not – I don't think that they ever should have in the Maxwell years 
said that there was one driver or another driver. They should have taken the mentality that Ferrari has now with Charles Leclerc and, and uh, Carlos Sainz. That is a much better situation, cohesiveness, that maybe there is no need to say you are one, you are two, which was very clear. The writing was on the wall. They could have just allowed the two drivers to race, not race each other, but race, and then things probably would have shooken out differently. I do think it was a stupid move for Daniel Ricciardo to leave Red Bull, but that's a whole different episode. I think we've already covered it. I do think that it was a massive mistake for them to push Pierre Gasly into that role too early. And then I would argue that they they put Alex Albon in the same position where they shoved him into the season halfway through. They probably should have let Pierre Gasly see it out. They just have really done a lot in the last four years that are purely based on we must get Max the title. That is what the entire last four-year plan has been. I would even say five years if we go back a little bit further. It's just, it's silly. And for all the talk about Max wanting to be and they want them wanting Max to be the youngest world champion and, you know, he just won, I say with air quotes, last year. Like, yes, they got back to a winning status, and yes, they're doing well this year, but I feel as though they could have done so much better is if they played the long game and not tried to rush the short game with Max. They wanted to produce another youngest driver that's a champion. They wanted to recreate the success of Sebastian Vettel, and really, I don't know if that... Well, A, it didn't happen, but B, I don't know if it was ever going to happen at an in a time when Lewis Hamilton was so dominant. It would have been smarter to play the long the long game and not force it to happen before it was supposed to happen, which it felt like that they were doing when they were making all of those moves to find the the golden goose of a second driver. Yeah, and I feel as though we've got Yuki Sonoda, you know, the past two years. He's the most recent driver to be an F1 from the program. And I feel as though we learned a lot about Yuki from the fourth season of Drive to Survive. And I want to know more about his – I need to maybe do some more research or if it's out there about his time in as a junior driver for Red Bull because – I feel like he was the rebel child and like slipped through the cracks and in in the sense of like you know they had to get him on a routine they had to move him closer to base like maybe not the rebel child but um I don't know I I was shocked to see that side of Yuki coming from as a driver coming from the junior Red Bull program whereas every other driver has been like on their shit I almost feel like he's the anomaly. He was finding such success on track without the work off track that he didn't, they weren't criticizing him or weren't forcing him. But when you're in F1 and you now have to be just as committed off track that you are on track and there is a clear translation between what you do in your off time and your ability to perform on track. I think it finally, like, the rubber hit the road for him. Like, he was able to get by in the junior categories as, you know, maybe not training. 
he admits it, maybe not following a particularly intense workout regimen or eating regimen or sleeping regimen or training, whatever regimen you want to say there, so that he was kind of forced. It, I mean, he clearly was forced into it. We know that, but it was a, you either do the things you need to do off track or you're not going to have this seat. And clearly he was able to do the things off track and has been finding more performance this year. Okay, I've got one question for you, Megan. Do we think the Red Bull Junior program is a success or a failure? I think there's kind of two ways to look at that question. Has it created, generated, pushed out, graduated? What I don't know what word to use there as well. Like, you know, I don't know what you say there. Just like I don't know if you can use the word brainwashing. I think the program has clearly created good race drivers Sebastian Vettel Max Verstappen it has created great race drivers for other series we look at Jev we look at um why am I Brendan Hartley you look at Sebastian Buemi like it has clearly created or generated or molded great race car drivers I think the problem with the program is that it does not create teammates and that all stems from the mentality that Helmut Marco has instilled in in his training program. It's it's his. He was the one that founded it. It's from his ideas or concepts or I, I don't know what the word is here, but like the, the constant idea of like competition from the beginning, always being under pressure to perform, like that type of mentality breeds like you know, independent race drivers that are fully focused on their own performance. They don't, they haven't been taught the building blocks of being part of like the larger team. And that begins with their like motto. Their credo is competition from the beginning. I, I don't ever think there should be a, a program. Like clearly every program needs to be like, you have to perform or you can't be here. Like there is some that inherently in every program. But the fact that literally it is well known, like if you fuck up, you're dropped the anxiety that lives with that like constant state of pressure clearly gets to people and it breeds like only a selfish intention and a lack of looking at the greater team. It also breeds, I think drivers that end up in F1 too early, Pierre Gasly, Alex Albon, that can't actually sustain it. Like that there's a breaking point. You can't live under pressure. We're not humans. Aren't diamonds. We can't live under pressure forever. Yeah. I guess we're not coal now that coal. I think of that analogy. <laughs> we don't, under constant pressure, humans don't go from being coal to a diamond. That's not an actual thing that happens, whereas diamonds can't. That analogy worked a lot better when I didn't re go back and explain it. So, <laughs> you know, I tried. Race car drivers are not coal. Lesson of Red Bulls. <laughs> All right, why be a fangirl of Red Bull? Megan, you want to kick us off first? I'm going to go with Maxwell as my number one. Maxwell is my reason that I have still supported Red Bull. I also do subpoint B to that or subpoint A to that. I do really like Max and Checo. 
they're really Red Bull's marketing team is serving up some great Max and Checo content. Not as great as Max will never ever should anyone think that I'm discounting my original F1 bromance I loved. But I do think it's 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 quite 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 tasty. I like that. Quite tasty. It is a quite tasty duo. I I appreciate them. I think I have to go Sebastian Vettel's championship years era like how can you not be a fan of Red Bull for that exact reason he did so well that picture of him bowing in front of the car is iconic that's my answer okay I am going to go with Red Bull and it's a villain era I'm calling this era right now the Red Bull villain era and that's because they're literally run by two villains, Media Spite and Senator Palpatine. They're villain era. I'm sorry. Helmut Marco is a terrifying human being, and he genuinely looks like Senator Palpatine. And if you don't think so, then you are clearly needing to go to an ophthalmologist. Or to, like, rewatch the Star Wars series. If you've never seen it. Maybe. Seriously, the man's skin looks like Senator Palpatine's after he got. <laughs> and clearly, fine. I know Star Wars folklore. Seriously, clearly, I know Star Wars lore way better than I know Marvels. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fine. I, you know, you grew up a little bit more with Star Wars. Rem- I literally couldn't remember the name of the Infinity Stones, and I've only watched that movie so many times. Happens, happens, happens to the best of us. We shit the bed sometimes. Like <laughs> Daniel Ricardo after he left Red Bull. Ah! Okay, moving oh. on. All right, last but not least, I think my last reason is that I'm just excited to see a challenger, a third challenger to the mix of Mercedes, Ferrari, and now Red Bull. It's exciting I- to see three teams duking it out. I do think there's something nice about, like, the concept of, like, Ferrari being the legacy of F1. They are, like, Ferrari is the other F word. And Mercedes being, like, the champion of the last years, the silver arrows, the white knights, if you must. And then there's, like, Red Bull, and they are the villain. Like, I do love that, like, weird, like, trio. And I could completely have created this in my own mind. But in my mind, that's how I see it. (laughs) just admitted that I think way too much about this stuff in my <laughs> mind late at night when I probably should be rewatching Marvel movies so I know what <laughs> so you know what the, the infinity happened. stones are we literally Whoopsies. watched a YouTube video about the infinity stones that one night in the Popeye's, in drive the Popeyes drive I do remember it yeah I wasn't actively driving while we were watching it we sat there for 45 minutes for our chicken yes it was worth it and the biscuits All right, we digress yet again. Up next is the French Grand Prix at the Paul Ricard Circuit. This 53-lap race will take place on this coming Sunday, July 24th. It is the home race for Pierre Gasly and Esteban Ocon. The track was built in 1969, hee hee hee, with the consultation of two French drivers. 
It opened in April of 1970 with the circuit's innovative facilities, making it one of the safest motor racing circuits in the world at the time of its opening. So kind of cool. Kind of cool to mention that. Something I didn't really know until I started really digging into like research about the tracks. It is well known by its visual appearance. Like, you know the track when you see the picture of the track because of the blue and black runoffs called the blue zones and then the red runoffs, which are called the red zones. It really is just so iconic when you see it. I just, in my brain, I just visualized it and it's like, you can't mistake it just like you can't mistake Coda with the stars. Yeah, It's very like, that is that if you see a picture. There's no doubt in your mind which track it is. Nonetheless, the track at in France is a even distribution of high, medium, and low speed corners. And really that, you know, mix of corners, that long straight, has made it a great place for testing in addition to the fact that France does have mild winters there. It was built on a plateau and it has that like long iconic straight and it's a very like elongated track design. So even if you don't see like a picture of it, you just see like an image of the track. It's very easy to pick out from the rest. Kind of like Baku is very easy to pick out from the rest. The weird shapes are easy. In 2020, the circuit received its three star FIA accreditation. It is also tied with Barcelona for this. And it's the second most sustainable track in the world behind Mugello. Like I said, it is tied with Barcelona. So kind of a cool thing that only happened in 2020. It was the same year that they um, celebrated their 50th anniversary of the circuit. Last year, we saw a Max Verstappen victory. The question is, are we going to see another one of those this year? Or will Ferrari be able to pull it off for three wins in a row? Join us next week for the French Grand Prix race recap to dive deep into who wins the red bulls or the prancing horses thank you so much for listening to another episode don't forget to subscribe and follow us at dirty driving pot on twitter and instagram until next time stay dirty